As we continue, and in fact, uh, this morning is our last in our uh, brief little series here, uh, Psalms in the Advent. And so we are looking at Psalm 98, which is this great celebration, what we're calling this great song of joy. So from Psalm 98, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. In 1719, one of the greatest English hymn writers, if not the greatest English hymn writer, Isaac Watts, Uh, some of you are familiar with Isaac Watts, some of you may not be familiar with him, Uh, he wrote uh, some of the more famous English hymns, like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, and hundreds and hundreds uh, of of more more hymns than than just those two. Uh, In 1719, he finished what was probably his most impressive undertaking, He finished a book of poems based on all 150 psalms. Now, he didn't just set the psalms to music. That's done. It's been done so many times. It's still done today. You take the the English psalms and you put them into a meter that you can sing as a congregation. But that's not exactly what he did. This was a book of poems with every psalm, all 150 of them, pointing to the person and work of Christ explicitly. And the most famous of these poems is his adaptation of Psalm 98, which we just read. And we sang that poem earlier this morning because that poem became a song that we hear played and sung all over Christmas time. It's Joy to the World. Now, if you think about it, it's a weird Christmas song, Joy to the World. Uh, It goes without saying, I know I don't need to mention it, but I will. It doesn't mention the commercialized parts of Christmas. Uh, There are no trees or presents, obviously. I know I didn't need to say that. But what makes it weird is that it doesn't sound like a Christmas carol or Christmas hymn. There's no manger, there's no baby, there's no wise men or stars. And yet, you are still just as likely in December 2021 to hear this song played as you're sitting in Starbucks or waiting for your tires to get changed this week. Joy to the world is all about the coming of a king. Okay, that sounds maybe like Christmas. We do sing about kings, uh, but it's not a humble king because this song, this poem, is not about the, uh, the, the first coming of Christ in humility. It's a song about the second coming, the second advent of Jesus, where he will come again in glory. And as our psalm puts it, Psalm 98, he will come to judge. I mean, this is a strange Christmas song, yet all of the Rat Pack sing it. 
It's still a standard that's released by pop stars wanting to get in on that Christmas album action. I was looking for the weirdest rendition of Joy to the World, and I came up with Kenny G. It's a terrible version. That also goes without saying. Yeah, it goes without saying. And, but this is the one that got me. Disney's Family Christmas Collection. So you have like Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck saying, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That doesn't really feel like 2021. It's a strange Christmas song, but you have to admit it's a perfect Advent song. It's a perfect Advent song because as I've been talking about, Advent is all about waiting. Waiting for our King to come and to right all wrongs, to heal that which is broken, for God's rule and reign and kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. And Psalm 98 both celebrates and it anticipates Christ in three powerful ways. Three ways that we need to be reminded of. Three ways that we need to explore deeply, that we need to live out of. So first of all, Psalm 98 looks back at Jesus as victor. We look back at the work that Christ has already done. We reflect and we live out of his victory over sin and death. He is our victor. He is our conquering savior. Secondly, we go into the present. Psalm 98 calls us to start singing, to acknowledge that our king reigns even now. Yes, Jesus came as a king. He will come again as a king, but even now he reigns over all creation from his throne. Get your instruments ready and join creation's song in praising our king. And finally, the psalm anticipates, it looks forward to Jesus returning and coming again as judge. And so Christ is our past, present, and future. In the past, our victor. In the present, our reigning king. And in the future, he's our judge. All right, so let's go back. Let's look at Jesus, the victor. Now, obviously, Jesus is not mentioned in Psalm 98. So why do I feel the liberty to say that this is about Jesus? Well, the psalm celebrates the Lord God of Israel. And I would affirm with Isaac Watts and with so many before him, and this is the bread and butter of Christ Presbyterian, that this psalm does celebrate the victory of Jesus. The psalm directs us to look in the past at God's great works of victory, uh, which, by the way, all of them are paving the way. All of them are leading. They're previewing to God's greatest work. And so take the Exodus as an example. God's greatest work of liberation, freeing his people from Egyptian bondage, taking them through the Red Sea, this creation of a holy people, all of that pales in comparison to the greater work of liberation that Jesus did. So what do we do? Sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now what is a new song? There are lots of ways we can think about a new song. I think the most technical way we can think about a new song is God does something victorious. We experience the victory of God and so we sing because we have new information about God's faithfulness to us. Again, greatest example of a new song is the Exodus. In Exodus 15, God delivers his people, and they don't just start marching. What do they do? They bring out the tambourines, and they write a song. God has thrown horse and rider into the sea. We're celebrating. King David danced like a fool to a new song. The ark is delivered from the Philistines into Israel. He can't help himself. He's dancing to a new song. Every time God enacts victory, God's people respond with new songs. And I think there's a way that we can put that into our own lives as well. Every time we experience God's faithfulness, every time God proves himself, 
There, there are times we look back and say, I see the hand of God in that situation. What is our response? Sing a new song. But the best new song, you have to admit, the best new song is going to come out of Christmas joy. To sing a new song because the Savior has come. Because where is God more clearly and powerfully made known his salvation or revealed his righteousness to the nations than in the coming of Christ? Sing a new song because the Lord has done marvelous things. So we're remembering. We're looking back at what God has done. We're looking to his marvelous things. His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation. That's Advent language. Right hand and holy arm. It's a way of saying God has done what only God can do to save a people who cannot save themselves. So we think of the inability of Israel. Forget the nations. But God's people to, to faithfully follow after their God, their inability to do that. From golden calves to wilderness rebellions. Read through the kings of Judah and Israel and they just can't rid themselves of idols. The inability of God's own people to love God and neighbor according to the standard of God's law. And what we see when we look at Israel is, of course, we see us. Our own inability to save ourselves. Our own inability to remove our sins and pull it together. The inability of men and women, of you and I, to pursue the righteousness required by God. And so God intervened and he saved this is the Christmas story, but it's scandalous. Because where do we see God's strong arm and his right hand? It's a young virgin girl told she's going to bear a child. It's a helpless baby. It's a helpless baby growing in stature, just like you and I grow in stature. And he becomes a man, just and true and good, unjustly crucified, and in the end, victorious when the tomb is left empty. In Christ, God gave us what we needed most, even though we had all the wrong ideas of what we thought we needed. Christmas is always the subversion of our expectations. Christmas is the celebration of God's right hand and strong arm Jesus, who comes in a way that none of us could anticipate or expect or hope. He didn't come on a chariot, He didn't come on, on winged horses from heaven. The fullness of time, God acted, God provided, and God saved. One of the, uh, the favorite Christmas movies of my home, of my household, the Ricios, we love Home Alone. I'm sure some of you like Home Alone. Maybe some of you haven't seen it in quite a while. You've never seen it. It follows the exploits of eight-year-old Kevin McAllister, who bravely fins off the wet bandits who are trying to rob his home. So the majority of the movie focuses on, on, on Kevin and his, his really genius traps that he sets for the bandits. But there's another storyline that's happening at the same time, which is about Kevin's mom. Kevin's parents are in Paris. They're going to celebrate Christmas with uh, family members who are overseas. And so she's trying to get back to Chicago. And she's in the Paris airport. And there are no early flights. And, and she's just overcome with grief and anxiety and fear. And my favorite part of the movie is when that comes to a climax and she's yelling at this poor French airline attendant, it's Christmas, the season of perpetual hope. I love that line. I love that line. It's Christmas, the season of perpetual hope. I grieve for Kevin's mom in that line because I don't know what that means. 
the season of perpetual hope. Because I think we have something better. We have the season of concrete hope, of specific hope, of incarnate hope. And this is the kind of hope that is a judgment on the false hopes of this world, false hopes that you and I can so easily and readily buy into, hope in things that don't save, hope that demands immediate results, hope that is pragmatic, hope that rushes into action, hope that doesn't know what it means to be still and know that God is God, which means it's a hope that will burn out. This time that we're living in has been called the age of anger, the age of despair, the age of anxiety. Those are all indications that we are really good at putting our hope in the wrong things. T.S. Eliot, the, the great poet, and probably his greatest work, The Four Quartets, talked about being a people who wait without hope, which is a beautiful idea. See, he was a Christian. He believed in hope, but what he meant was we need to be a people who don't buy into the hope of, of the, the, that the world buys into. The hope of those things that don't say. We wait as those who have no hope in the false saviors of this world. And we find that in, in incarnate hope. Incarnate hope delivers something better. It delivers the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus. It delivers his kingship. Incarnate hope is grounded in the right hand and holy arm of the God who saves. All right, so we look back. That's the first step. That's where the psalm begins. We look back. We remember Jesus as our victor in the past, and then the psalm moves to the present where we are to praise Jesus as our king. I think you've heard me say this before, but we do kind of struggle with understanding what it means for Jesus to be king, right? I mean, this is part and parcel of our American identity. Like one of the first things we did is we said, we don't want a king. So what does it mean for Jesus to be king? What does it mean to celebrate Jesus as king? So kids... Let me ask you a question. Boys and girls, let me ask you a question. What pops into your head when you think of a king? Some of you might go with crowns, right? Kingdoms, castles, scepters, maybe long royal robes. And okay, that's one thing. But now let's think about what do kings do? When you think of a king, what does a king do? Is a king in charge? Yeah. So is Jesus. Does a king have power? You bet. So does Jesus. Does a king offer protection? Yeah, a good king does, and so does Jesus. You see, all of these aspects of kingship are true, and they're important, and we get them from the Bible. That's how Jesus is king. Psalm 98 highlights a couple of different, other different aspects of what it means for Christ to be king. And I think they're worthy of our reflection during this Advent season. In Psalm 98, I think what we see about God's kingship is that his reign is cosmic, first of all, and his reign is sweet. His reign is cosmic and his reign is sweet. So in verse 3, he's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Israel's divine king, Israel's Lord, is over the whole creation. So you have on the one hand, you have steadfast love and faithfulness. And those are central to God's covenant relationship with Israel. That means his promise-keeping, promise-binding relationship. And that's supposed to spill out over to the ends of the earth for all of the nations to see and embrace and enjoy. Israel's king is the world's king. Israel's Messiah is the world's Messiah and the world's deliverer and the world's savior, Jesus is king of all. As we sang this morning, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth 
receive her king. We see this in the Gospels. In Matthew's story of Jesus' birth, he spends so much time presenting Jesus as the long-awaited king of Israel, but his emphasis is that he's, he's the king of the nations. So Herod, the so-called king of Israel, is threatened by this news of Jesus' birth, but then you have the wise men, the magi, pagan, Persian, Babylonian astrologers, and they come to worship Jesus. What's the main takeaway from Matthew? He's a king for the nations. Luke traces out the same theme in his gospel when he talks about the, the infancy of Jesus. Remember, Jesus, a few weeks after being born, is presented in the temple, and he's brought to a man named Simeon, who we're told is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? This man's calling in life is waiting to know that Israel will be okay, and he takes Jesus into his arms, and it's as if he says, Israel will be okay. With my own eyes, I've seen God's salvation. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is the glory of Israel, but he's a light that emanates like the, like the dawn. It emanates across the globe. Remember how this psalm began. Sing a new song. Well, Israel's Messiah becomes the subject of the salvation songs of all the nations. Psalm 98 puts it, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now Christmas can sentimentalize Jesus as king. I think that's the threatening thing about kind of cultural Christmas, right? It's just, it's just a myth. It's just this kind of beautiful, touching story that the hope of the world is in this baby. That sounds sweet, but come on, let's be real. It's just a sweet, harmless baby as a king, but no. Jesus is king and you and I and all living things in earth and under the earth, they all belong to him. We belong to him. We are his. So let me suggest that we can kind of, we can blow up the Christmas story uh, too often in the way that we respond to it because the humility of our king that we celebrate this time of year, the scandal of this king being born, this helpless baby, isn't that just a pure gospel invitation to come and fall at the feet of the one who came to save? It's an invitation to come and behold him. But Jesus' reign, his current reign is cosmic. He is overall, he's enthroned upon his heavenly throne. All that takes place, including the chaos, including a world that seems out of control, everything, including our pain and our suffering and our hurt, they are all under the sovereign reign of Jesus. And all of it will be redeemed when his kingdom is fully realized when he comes again. And so what is our response to this cosmic kingship? It's joy. His reign is cosmic. The, the, the world is under the sovereignty of our king, but his reign is so sweet. Like this is a king who brings out joy from his people. That's the point. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song. Grab the instruments. Get the whole band playing. Get the roof off the house. We're going to play a joyous song before the king. Because God does not reign with terror. He's not a tyrant. His power is exercised sweetly. His reign introduces joy. So we join the song and we call others to join in the song of the one who alone is worthy of our worship. He is worthy. At the end of the day, that's very much the point of Psalm 98, is that our king is worthy. And it's transformed into a Christmas song because it's about the joy of our king who's come. 
This song calls us to remember the victory of our king, to, res- to respond in praise to the current reign of King Jesus. And then finally, and you could argue this is what the psalm is getting to, it's anticipating the judgment of Jesus. There's a beautiful intensification in this psalm because it moves from sing a new song to just start making noise and then all of a sudden all of creation is joining in. As the praise amplifies, so do those who praise from Israel to the nations to all creation joining in this song. So we see that to sing for joy to the Lord is to join a song that's already going. It's creation song. In verse seven, let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? Not just in celebration of our king, but in anticipation of the one who will come to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Again, most of the time we think of Advent as this season of waiting. We go back and we read the Old Testament prophecies that foretold of the Messiah. Well, we slide right into those shoes, don't we? Because we too are a people who are waiting. Waiting for Jesus to come again in glory. And Psalm 98 gives us this poetic picture of joining impersonal creation, waiting for God to come, waiting for Jesus to come in judgment. Doesn't the Apostle Paul pick up on this idea in Romans 8 when when he gives us this world that's subjected to the futility of sin under the curse? Paul writes in Romans 8, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's like the creation is on pins and needles waiting for God to redeem it and the people of God join in this anticipation. Such a beautiful passage that explains the poetry of Psalm 98. We share with creation itself the joy of Advent, the joy of waiting for the Lord to return in judgment because judgment means the goodness, the righteousness, the joy and peace of God transforming the whole created order. The joy of waiting for Christ to return in judgment to make all things new and to put an end to everything that wrecks us. All of the sin, all of the suffering, all of the evil, all of the death that makes its mark on absolutely everything in this world. If there's no judgment coming, then the hope and joy and peace that's often talked about at Christmas is just an ugly fiction. It's a sweet nothing. There's no comfort to the suffering. There's no healing for the broken. Advent is a season that doesn't only direct our eyes back to God's amazing work of salvation and the incarnation, but it shifts our eyes forward to the judgment of the Son. We're like people who are magnetic, being pulled into the future, awaiting for this world to be restored. The hope and joy of you and me and the hope and joy of the world is wrapped up in God's judgment. We don't talk about that often, but it's true. We long for Jesus to come again because we love and we need and our only hope is in his holy arm and in his right hand. To long for God's judgment is a longing for righteousness to dawn over the earth. To long for God's judgment, and this is crucial, is to entrust ourselves 
into the saving hands of God. What's fascinating is that so often that the judgment of God is something that we think of as, that's what self-righteous people talk about. The judgment of God, is, it, it comes from that place of, of, of religious judgmentalism, and we want nothing to do with that. And so think about like the Westboro Baptist Church kind of people who show up invisibly and crassly and loudly. They tell everybody else that God is coming for them. See, I would argue the problem with that attitude of judgment is that they think too little of God's righteousness and too much of themselves. I would argue they have too small a view of God's judgment. Because praise of God's judgment isn't the song of the self-righteous. It's the song of those who know their absolute need of salvation. What other hope do we have? I can't trust my own judgment. I can't trust the judgment of the world. But I can trust in the judgment of the one who also is the Savior. And so for real, shout for joy. Because of the victory that Jesus has won. The song, maybe the new song we can sing, and this is, an, again, one of the Apostle Paul's new songs, is that at the end of the day we cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And his new song said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a way of Paul saying, indeed, God has done marvelous things. So the invitation for us this morning, and who is us this morning? It's this room. It's you and I. And who's sitting here in this golf college today? It's the hurting. It's the frustrated. It's the grieving. It's the sad. It's the discontent. It's the quick to anger. It's the anxious. It's remember who Jesus is for you. That he's your victor. Sing a new song this morning to his strong arm that hasn't only reached into this world, it's grabbed you by your heart. Make a joyful noise that Jesus, our King, uh, he didn't just reign in the past and he's not going to reign again in the future. It's not just those truths, it's that he reigns over you and over this world now, that under his reign encompass everything that is painful, which therein lies the hope that all will be redeemed. That everything that concerns you, everything that scares you, everything that troubles you is all within his sovereign care. Where else would you want it to be? Where else would you hope for it to be? And friends, let us join creation's song of celebration and anticipation that Jesus is coming again. In other words, our job description, you and I, is to repeat the sounding joy. Let's pray. Lord, what is the proper response to this word um, but to respond with celebration, um, to respond with deep joy because this is, is your creation. It belongs to you. You are the one who uh, will ultimately restore it. Lord, you are the one who will come again in judgment. And so, Lord, as we await that time, as generations of the church have, have, have awaited that time, as we find ourselves in this Advent season, just reminded that we are awaiting people. Lord, we long for all to be made right. We long for that which is corrupt 
and evil and that which is tainted by sin and by suffering and, and all of the things that we experience in our own lives, all of the things that we can take a 15-second look at a newspaper and realize this world is, is far worse than we often think. Lord, we were reminded that it all belongs to you. We were reminded of your strong arm and your right hand, which saves And Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and to the work that you will do in restoring all things to yourself, of turning right side up this world which exists upside down. Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, I pray that they would see the goodness that you are the judge. Lord, to be a human being is to be a judge. We live in a world of, of constant judgment, and yet the sweet news that the one who is good and perfectly equitable, the one who is holy, and also the one who reveals himself as merciful and compassionate is the judge. Lord, would we confide ourselves into that rock and find our protection? Would that be the joy and the song that we sing? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.